in the face of fear, I think there's a, there's a body reaction, right? Like there's times that I've hesitated in fear. And those times were really when I had a gun pointing at me or I was chasing someone that had a gun. And as I'm chasing them, they're pulling it out. And like in that moment, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm chasing this guy that has a Glock on him and he's about to pull it out. And this is going through your mind as you're chasing him down the street. And luckily for me, the times where I've hesitated the most, where I had every right to shoot, it's been a really young kid, you know? And where I've chased them down, I just didn't shoot. And they took off running and I've chased them down and caught them. And it's like trying to knock some sense into a young kid thinking, you know, why would you do that? I could have killed you. And, you know, them just kind of like not understanding. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. After being a four-time All-American lacrosse player at Penn State University, Michelle DeJulia served on the Baltimore SWAT team and then founded the Women's Professional Lacrosse League. In this episode, Michelle opens up about how growing up in a broken home inspired her to impact the lives of those in her community, even if it meant risking her own life. This podcast is like none other that I've done so far. It will inspire you, challenge you, and make you thankful for those that selflessly put their lives in harm's way to protect our communities. If you find this podcast valuable, please go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Michelle, glad to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be fun. So you were an All-American lacrosse player at Penn State for four years. That's a pretty amazing accomplishment. And you spent a year as a teacher before ending up on the Baltimore PD SWAT team. Take me through this progression. How did you end up there? Oh, my gosh. Well, I spent my time, yeah, at Penn State. It was an awesome experience. Obviously, as a, a Division One athlete, you just want to compete, and you don't want that competition to go away. So when I graduated, and I you know, was still loving teaching the game and just teaching in general, and I wanted to stay around athletics, but I had a couple of roommates that were police officers and they would come home every night talking about these stories. And it was also an opportunity to really kind of leave an impact in a different way. Um, I was so used to teaching younger kids, but now this is an opportunity to really kind of give back to more of the, the community and the city that I came from. And it, it, it pokes that, that bear inside of you that, you know, you want to go out and you know, to be competitive and see what you can do to, to help. And so that's kind of was my jumping off point. I was like, I'm doing this. I entered into the, uh, gosh, the police department. I didn't even tell my dad until I had, was about to, um, graduate from the how did he take the news the police academy <laughs> he hmm. wasn't thrilled about it at all you know because I think he just wanted to make sure that I was 
always safe. And, you know, mm-hmm. he knew though, after a conversation we had, he, he knew that I could take care of myself and that I would do a good job. And, uh, so he supported me, but you know, it, it wasn't an easy, an easy job to take on for sure. Yeah. And you didn't just like, you graduated the top of your class and then you're not, ex- you're not asking to like go for some like nice cushy desk job. You, you request the Western district of Baltimore, which is the most violent area in the city. Why did you decide to go right into the thick of it? Is it the bear that you're talking about that's poking you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wanted to be in action right away. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you, you learn so much and, and they tell you what it's going to be like. You do some ride-alongs. You, you're not prepared for what you're going to see when you're actually out on the street. So before I left the academy, you know, you get your choice of where you, you put in your top three places. And, you know, I picked the Western District, the Eastern District, and I think, you know, I, and Central maybe, which is right where headquarters is. And it's just, you know, it, it's busier. But the East and West Side is known for, you know, the high drug trafficking and it's just, and don't quote me on this, but I think there was like 312 murders that year in mm. Baltimore City. So, and a lot of them were happening on the East and West Side. And, you know, for me, I was like, okay, if I'm going to go in and do this, I'm going to do it guns blazing in here and, and try to do whatever I can to, to help the, the city. And it was action immediately and more than I could have asked for. And I honestly have to say, like, I've probably seen more things in in that short amount of time in the police department than anybody should ever experience in their life of heartache. It is really emotionally, it, it grows on you and you just, you have to either figure out a way to deal with that emotion and try to overcome it and still do your job as effectively as you can, or you kind of go in a different direction, which isn't a good direction, you know, and I think a lot of police struggle with the good and the bad. So let's lean into that for just a second. Like when you were there, I believe there was like you had the DC sniper issue, which was horrendous. I mean, you were involved in some pretty intense moments. Uh, I know you, you mentioned that, you know, your first time out, there was a pretty horrific yeah. homicide scene that you had to see. How did you prevent yourself from going down that dark pathway. You know what I'm saying? With the stress and the things that you were seeing. Yeah. I, I tried to see the good in what I was doing, knowing that I, even though it, it probably didn't make a dent in the amount of drugs that were out on the street. I knew that when I was on my post, I was keeping the corners clean. I pulled my gun every day on the job, every day, unless I was in training, I pulled my gun every day. And, you know, the things that I saw were, it was just like the way of life. And so you're seeing murders, you're seeing stabbings, you're seeing gunshot to the head, you're seeing multiple, I've seen a guy get his arm chopped off in front of me. I've seen a guy get an ice Mm. pick in his head. I know this is pretty detailed and gory, but there are just, that was just everyday kind of life for that particular community that I worked in. And I did feel like when I was in patrol, that's one thing. You're answering 60 calls a night. And if if I can compare that for you to like what a county cop would, would get, would be like seven calls is a busy night. 
So you're managing all of those calls and every one of them has some sort of action-packed experience. And mm-hmm. you just, you have to find a way to be able to put it away in the back of your brain. If you're seeing something that, you know, is really hard. Like for me, I mean, child abuse was really difficult for me to handle. And I'm an animal lover. So that was difficult for me as well. And obviously, you know, you grow to meet some of the the neighbors and, and people on the street and that are really good people and you want to do right by them. And then you see mm-hmm. other kids on the street that really kind of, you know, they grew up in the city and this is what they've seen every single day of their lives. So they don't know any different. And you just try to help, you know? So littering, I'm like, come on, guys, we got to clean up our, our <laughs> corners. And, you know, but once I got to SWAT, um, it just raised the game a whole lot more. Your training is way more intensive. You know, your, your experience of what you're actually doing and the impact you're making is just, it skyrockets. So the things that I thought I was experiencing as a patrol officer and doing street rips and things like that, just are no way compared to, you know, being on SWAT and dealing with barricade situations and high risk raids. And, and like you said, the DC sniper, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody out canvassing, that was a scary time. You know, that was a really scary time. And, and, I'll never forget it because one place we used to go to get coffee before we get on our shift, the sniper was actually, his car was parked in the same lot that we were in. Had We didn't know, of course, until later when he got picked up and then it was our responsibility to bring him into the city. So you and the DC sniper were in the same area at the same time? You yeah, didn't know it? Didn't know it. Oh, in the same goodness. parking lot. And this is all based off the video footage that was recovered. And it was just crazy because you just don't know mm. and, and how crazy, you know, nuts that is. As somebody as aware as you are, it makes you realize that like there are certain things out of your control. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because you think you're on your A game. And just to give an example, like as an officer and you're trying to, like I would go in some days I'm doing plain clothes drugs and you'd be getting into a foot chase with somebody and I'd be racing, racing down the street into an alley. And then one thing, and this is kind of funny, and I guess because I was a lacrosse player, I like to run, right? So you go on a foot chase, I'm all for it, you know? <laughs> but these guys I'm chasing aren't used to running as the lo- you know, long as I could run. So I'd run yeah. and catch up to them side by side. And I'm like, are you going to stop? <laughs> you know? And then they just stop and put their hands They're behind their like, back. Who is this psychopath? <laughs> you know? It was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but there were things that, you know, they would set up. I'd chase them down the alley, like I said, into a vacant house and, you know, they might jump ahead of me and I run and fall down a couple flights of stairs through, you know, a floor, basic, basically a floor that they've laid carpet over. And, you know, you don't know that it's like a booby trap basically, or you run into a house and they duck and you run straight and there's barbed wire. You know, and it's, you think about it, like it's pretty creative on their on their part. They're just they're trying to get away from you, and you're trying, you know, you're trying to do everything you can to stop it. But those are things that you think again. You're on your your A game, and you can't do anything about that. You know, if you don't if you don't know, you're just going in. You're just trying to do your job, and, and so things happen. 
you've evidently dealt with fear straight on. Yeah. How, I mean, what was your psychology? What was your mindset of like when you knew sometimes like I'm sure it happens in your going and then there's other times where it's like you have a moment to realize and understand what could happen. Like, how did you deal with fear? Yeah, I think in the face of fear, I would say that there's a couple, I think there's a, there's a body reaction, right? Like there's times that I've hesitated in fear. And those times were really when I had a gun pointing at me or I was chasing someone that had a gun. And as I'm chasing them, they're pulling it out. And like in that moment, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm chasing this guy that has, you know, a, a Glock on him and he's about to pull it out. And this is going through your mind as you're chasing him down the street. And luckily for me, the times where I've hesitated the most, where I had every right to shoot, it's been a really young kid, mm. you know, and where I've chased them down, I just didn't shoot. And they took off running and I've chased them down and caught them. And it's like trying to knock some sense into a young kid thinking, you know, why would you do that? I could have killed you. And, you know, them just kind of like not understanding, like life wasn't valued. Like I would value life. And you're just trying to be like, oh, I just want you to be better. And I don't know. I mean, that, that situation and situations where I'm running down the street and, you know, the hesitation, I feel like something inside you tells you. And then there's times when your fear just tucks away and you go for it. And I've had both. And the times that I've had those have been in life and death situations. Hmm. And uh, they're pretty scary. And I think the, the, the most scariest one for me is, I, I think you said that you were... Six three and about two twenty. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the guys I was in a, a complete battle with was your size, and I'm five three, right? Mm. And so I I saw him, and I don't know if you want me to dive into this, but I basically Talk saw about him. It if you want to, saw him in a car. Uh, it was midnight, under a street light, four flat tires. It was a blue Volvo. I'll never forget it. And I go to the passenger side door. I'm in plain clothes. My two partners were in the front seat. They were excellent at spotting drugs. They taught me a lot about, you know, how to identify who had what and everything. And so I'm the runner. I'm in the back of the car. So I go and knock on the door. And I'm like, the guy opens the door. And as he starts to talk, he's got um, dime bags of, you know, Coke in his mouth. And I can see it. And so I just look over at my partners who were always drivers because they were a little bit out of shape. So that's why I was the runner. And I said, you know, this guy's 1030, which means, you know, he's dirty. And um, I said to the guy, hey, why don't don't you step out of the car? And as I'm doing that, I'm reaching behind my back and I'm trying to grab my, my cuffs. And he hears the snap of my cuff and just socks me right in the face, right? So I'm thinking, oh my God, I could totally back off. You know, this guy is giant as he's coming out of the car, but I was instantly like, okay, this fight is on. So we ensued into a battle, which I felt was 15 minutes long. That was really less than a minute and 30 seconds. It was a lot of back and forth. I finally got him to the ground. My partners jumped out of the car. They were trying, they were winded. It was 
awful. But at the end of this, I had been trained recently with a uh, the baton, the ASP, which is that expandable baton. And I remember getting into this thought in my mind, I have to use this. This is the only way I'm going to be able to get this guy under control. Plus, he was so high. He was not feeling a thing that we were doing. And I'm you know, using it, please telling him to, you know, stop resisting. And, and finally I just dropped it. I'm like, I can't, this is not working. I'm laying now on top of him and get his arm so jacked up that it breaks. I get his other arm finally cuffed behind his back and all these police officers are coming. Sirens are everywhere. A signal 13 was dropped. And, um, I, he was laying on his, on his, uh, his stomach. I rolled him over. My lieutenant comes over and says, are you okay? And I'm breathing so heavy, leaning over him. And just as she says it, I said, you know, I'm fine. I haven't checked him yet. And as I said that, I looked down and he's got a gun pointing at me. So he had a gun in his back pocket. And at that moment, I instantly dropped my knee right onto his wrist. His, his hand released the gun. And, um, I was lucky because in that moment, I think I, I saw my life flash right before my eyes. It was a really um, intense moment for sure. Can I just say that I'm thankful for you? <laughs> well, thank like, you. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time with this right now. Um, Cause there's a lot of people that put themselves in harm's way. And I don't think like right now, there's a lot of things going on in our country that need to be fixed, but there are people like you that have done things very honorably and just kind of exist in the shadows, so to speak. And I just really appreciate that, that you would do that for others and put yourself really in a position of life or death for them. And just to hear you articulate empathy (laughs) in a crazy situation, like you're chasing somebody down that may have a gun and they're a kid and you're like, I just want to help them. I just wanted to take a pause for a second and just say that because that's, um, mm, thank you very much. So you did end up transitioning. I'm sorry. This was, yeah, wow. I did. I mean, that, that was the time I transitioned into from street to SWAT. And then I got to tell you, I mean, when, when I, there was a point in my career. So that was your street. Then you decided to go ahead and go direct, basically direct action. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be a part of what they say is when you're in SWAT, it's like, it's who the police call when they're in trouble. Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed not only the guys I worked with, I mean, they're, they're like brothers to me, you know, and you really don't, I mean, I guess if you're in any of the armed forces, your team, you know, it's just, you, you, that's your team. That is the person you are relying on to save your life if you get mm-hmm. in trouble. And it is, you have to trust them. And if you don't, then, you know, you, you're you basically, uh, you, you sometimes I would like to say is like, you have, every night you go out on the street, you have a chance of not coming home. And, and so those guys, you know, we trained every day and, uh, I, I love them like my brothers and, you know, it was a great experience, but I do know that I know my body well enough to know that I didn't like who I was starting to become when I didn't have as much empathy, as you said, and it wears on you. And that was only five years in, you know, and I just thought I got to make a change. But then I got pulled out anyway to be on the 
commissioner's detail. So <laughs> I kind of, I had that. So it was kind of a blessing in, dis- in disguise. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So you, you transitioned to what a lot of people would say is a promotion for you at the time. It didn't feel that way. Yeah. But you, you go into the commissioner's detail. How much longer after that did you decide to transition out of police work? I think all along I'd been playing on the U.S. team after college. So, <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. I, How are you staying in shape for right. lacrosse and keeping your skill up so, while you're having yeah. to hone your skills as a, you know, as a police officer, as a SWAT? I mean, how did you do that? How, where'd you find the time? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm a, I guess I'm good with time management, but um mm. You know, I would find the time. And and honestly, when I was in SWAT, you could train two hours a day. So you could go running. So I would do that every morning. So you could get that mm-hmm. in. But, you know, once once I got to the point of the commissioner's detail, it's really not an exotic job. And so as, as much as I say that I didn't like who I was becoming, I'd rather be on the street trying to take drugs off the street or guns off the street versus sitting in a car and kind of driving somebody around. And so at that point, I was like, okay, you know, I'm involved in lacrosse. I still want to play, you know, on the national team, continue being, you know, as best as I can be in the sport. And at that moment, I started a, a club lacrosse team that was in Philadelphia while I was working in Baltimore, because that was the region where, you know, there was need. And at the time that I had just been assigned, probably, I want to say eight weeks after I got that promotion, I should say, the Princeton women's lacrosse assistant job opened up and I was coaching my club and I was at a tournament and I ran into Chris Saylor, who is the head coach at Princeton. And she said her assistant job was open. And I was like, maybe I should apply for that. You know, and she is somebody I've always respected in the game who has an incredible record of just winning tradition and is, um, you know, everybody loves her and she's just well-respected. And I thought if I ever had an opportunity to coach with her, I should definitely jump on it, you know, even if it meant a career change. And that's what I did. Wow. Okay. This is so interesting to me. You're in Baltimore running a lacrosse club in Philly. Like how far of a drive is that? It's about a two hour, one, one and a half hour, two hour drive. Depending. I mean, I had my badge is probably a little bit shorter. <laughs> I'm, I'm on my way to something important. So you would, that's what I'm I mean, you, you could pull that one off. So you're doing this, then you get an opportunity to go to Princeton in New Jersey. Did the, did the club stop? Did you have to put halt on that? No, I continued to build that. So that's actually still, you know, it's one of my businesses yeah. right now. I've been doing that since 2001. But I, I continued to do club, but I had, you know, there were certain restrictions on college coaches. You had to live right. within a certain radius. And um, what I did is hire somebody to handle more of the administration and coaches mm-hmm. and just make sure things were operating as they needed to be while I was coaching college. So while you're coaching college, or so while you're in PD, you're still competing as an athlete. But all the like your athletic career really culminated in, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like in 2009 with the gold medal with the um, U.S. national team. But that wasn't such a smooth road, was it? Like pretty bumpy and up and down. You want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I 
spent about 15 years on the national team in total, right? So when I was, I'm going to actually take it back here, right? So high school, I, I learned to play lacrosse in ninth grade. I got introduced to it the summer before. And then, but I really learned from my high school coaches, like to compete. Did you play sports in, before that? I didn't play lacrosse, but I played sports. I played, I played soccer, basketball, and softball. Okay. So soccer, like those things all kind of combine for lacrosse because the way lacrosse is played, I mean, you have these kind Big of formations field. almost like, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Go people, ahead. People compare it a lot to basketball and the movement, but I would yeah. say um, those coaches, they're like, you're not playing softball, you're playing lacrosse, right? So mm. that year, that was my freshman year of high school. And um, the U.S. team came to our, our high school and did a clinic. And I thought, I'm going to be on the U.S. team right right away from meeting them. I was just in awe, right, of their ability, of their passion. I was grateful for their time that they they gave to us. And then fast forward four years, I made the U.S. team. I was super excited and and just being a part of it. But I also know that there was a lot of other players that had a lot more experience than me that, you know, and so 97 was a World Cup. I didn't think I would make it, but I was hoping and I was I was part of a 24 squad, which they didn't take 24 players. They took 18, mm. actually 16 at the time. So I was fine with that, you know, and I just was like, I'm going to keep plugging away, you know, and then I graduate, teach, I go in the police department, police department's a little bit more restrictive on my training, you know, with allowing me days off and things like that. So 2001, became difficult for me to even try out. So I didn't get to try out for the 2001 World Cup. And so I was like, okay, that's a big span from 97 to 2005, which would have been the next one. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting older. So let's remember that, you know? So as I continue to train, I now am at Princeton and um, I'm like, you know, I'm going to go for this. So I'm on the team, uh, still the same coach that was there in 97, the one that was there in 93 and the one that was there in 89, you know, so she, she had been a long time coach. This would likely be her last one. And the players that were on the team were the, the crew that kind of come with her through her years. And so were younger kids going to break into that? I didn't know, but I was going to give it everything mm-hmm. I had. And at that time we go to training camp and I am on the 24, the, the squad of 24. And this time they're taking 18. And this World Cup was held in Annapolis, Maryland. So it was oh, on our geez. home soil. Yeah. And I was thinking, God, I, this would be great, you know, to be on the World Cup team. And so I didn't make the cut to be on the 18. And then, you know, a day or two after training camp, my co- the coach calls me and she said, um, you know, one of our players is injured. I'm going to bring you in. And I was at Princeton. I remember telling Chris, I'm like, this is great. Like, what an awesome opportunity. You know, I'm ready. And uh, it took a couple a couple days. I'm waiting to hear from her. She's like, I'll call you and let you know. I'm waiting to hear from her. And I didn't hear from her. And so finally, Jeez. I call her and I'm like, you know, whether you need me now or not, I deserve a call, you know. And so that was hard because I respected her. She was a tough coach. And I gotta, I gotta kind of give her, you know, a little leniency because she's in the middle of a World Cup, and she probably has her mind on a lot of other things. And I didn't feel that way at the time. I definitely felt like 
I got slighted a little bit. Yeah. And so, you know, that, at that time, that was hard. That was hard for me. And I had to make a decision. Was I going to continue on for another four years, you know, and, and try to make the 2009 world cup. And I sat, I sat around thinking about it, talking with friends and my decision was, it became very clear. My, my goal was to now just kind of, that, that was my desire, right. To make Mm -hmm. it. But now I'm like, I'm the older one on the team. I'm the older, oldest one. Now I need to lead by example. I need to lead these younger kids and hopefully I can give them some experience that is going to help them, you know, make the 2009 world cup team and win a gold medal. And I think mm-hmm. at that moment, I probably just forgot about the playing and just played and wasn't yeah. so mental about it. And I think I played my best and ended I up love making it. So it was awesome story to like how it So all, you shifted you know, your focus together. really from me making it to helping these younger folks, younger athletes. And that's when you make it. Not to yeah. say that there was a correlation. I'm just saying that in yeah. your mind, your psyche, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was a different coaching staff. And actually the head coach was one of my teammates from previous U.S. years. And she's actually from my hometown. So she's not originally from my She was there when she played at Loyola when I was growing up. And I remember watching her and we became pretty close. And her staff was awesome. And so, you know, I just felt really grateful that one, that they, that she gave me a shot. She believed in me. She believed in my leadership. And that, you know, we could get the job done. And I, I was just uh, honored. I mean, you're obviously honored to represent your country, but it's, you know, you don't know you it until you're there. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It was, it was a cool so experience. So how old were you in 2009 when you finally won that World Cup, if you don't mind me asking? I was 30. No, 29. No, 29. was I 29? Yeah. No, 34. 34. Okay. That's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Right. 20. Yeah. 25. Yeah. I was 34. So you're 34 years old. That's, you know, if biologically for athletes, typically that's past their prime, but you're the captain and that's the time you win the gold medal. I mean, what an amazing, I think, example too, to your athletes at Princeton. And did you learn through that process of kind of like okay, I'm coaching these athletes and these are the things I'm looking for in them. Now it's my opportunity to display the same thing as a teammate on the national team. I mean, did that ever enter your mind? Yeah. You know, I, I, well, first I was lucky to be in the position to be able to share, you know, my experiences with them and, Mm -hmm. you know, be on the field with them and train with them. And so, you know, so many things that you can teach when you're in the moment. And I got to do that a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I think that those players uh, that I got an opportunity to coach at Princeton were first amazing young women that were so driven, that taught me so much in return, you know, for what I gave to them. But it only made me, made me better. It made me a better coach. It made me a better player. Because the more you actually understand the game and the X's and O's and how you're teaching it, you're, you're constantly evolving, you know, as a, as a player physically, because you can mm-hmm. now grasp it a little bit better. So, yeah, it was, it was a really cool opportunity and time for me. It's very unique. 
That's very unique. Not many times do you have that opportunity to coach and then also to be an athlete yourself at the same time at a very high level. Now you went on to found <laughs> the tough, I mean, your story is amazing. The women's professional lacrosse league. Uh, when did you start that? Well, I, I left Princeton actually in 2012. Uh-huh. And that was because I wanted to start a family. Uh-huh. Um, I was getting married and I wanted to start a family and, you know, it's really difficult to, to do all those things and all the other things that I was doing. So I had to, you know, figure that out. But I think that it was 2015. I actually, I actually got a call from this woman who asked me to be the commissioner of uh, the UWLX, which was the pro league that she was creating, that she and this other woman were creating. And I was like, pro league for women is amazing. Let's, let's do that. Mm -hmm. It didn't end up being exactly what I had hoped it would be. And I give her props for taking a stab at it, but they came from a different sport. So things are just different, you know? And so mm-hmm. understanding how, you know, you know, baseball players are different from, you know, softball players or basketball players. It's just different. So the experience wasn't great. And when I, after that season, after that season, I was just like, this is not for me. I don't want to necessarily move forward. At that time, the people that I had pulled in to be involved in it were like, you've got to do something. You've got to start a pro women's league that is going to be everything that we think it should be. And and believe me, that was like a major decision because it just, it's a lot of time and um, a lot of money and, you know, trying to get the right people on board. But quite honestly, in my eyes, like the women in our sport that have worked so hard deserve an opportunity to play professionally. And Mm -hmm. if I could do something about it, I'm like, this is what I need to do. You know, I was convinced that I could make this happen and I could provide them a platform where they could empower and inspire and, and give back to these young girls that are in, in our country that, you know, that just want to be better and want to be just like them. And mm-hmm. um, so we created all kinds of programming where our women weren't only the pro players. They were women that we wanted to give professional days to and, and help them off of the field. And we wanted to create futures program, which is still existing today where our pros are coaching the next generation and they, you know, get an opportunity to kind of have a full life cycle of a female lacrosse player, you know, where mm-hmm. you're young, you advance through all of these programs from middle school through high school to college to the pros, and it all connects. And mm-hmm. so I think we did that successfully. It, you know, quite honestly, it's it's a struggle financially. And that's really what and you know, COVID hits and you're just like, oh my gosh, how can you find a way? And as I told you, like the biggest thing for me is just like, there, if there's an obstacle, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way around it and I'm going to find mm. a solution and I'm going to find a way to make this okay and this better and this succeed. And, and that's what I did, but it was awesome. I mean, I got to tell you the, the pro league, the women are amazing. They're amazing athletes. And I feel like we had a really great opportunity and we did right by the sport. We changed the rules of the game, which has advanced our sport. And we've we've made some big strides. So I'm proud of that. You should be. And uh, you sold the league. Is that correct? Yeah, we basically um, 
so I don't know if you've done your research on Athletes Unlimited. It's a company that is really amazing, but they're they're basically have now pro women's softball and pro women's volleyball is about to launch, and now the WPLL has become AU lacrosse, pro lacrosse, and that's going to launch mm-hmm. this summer coming up. So it's really like all of these pro women's sports in such a cool setting that you know it's it's different than any other any other any other way that we've all tried to have pro pro women's sports but th- what they've come up with is like you know a point system of how which that makes it exciting right like it's basically like you can earn points individually and you can earn them as a team and only team points are w- way worth more than you know individual points so you're not losing like that i'm out here for myself you know, I'm, I'm just going to mm-hmm. score all these points and I'm going to earn, you know, money because of it. But the team is valued more. And, you know, the girls, you know, the women that are involved, they're the best, they're the best players in our country. Now, the numbers that we had in the WPLL probably double the number that we're having here with Athletes Unlimited, but we're mm-hmm. doing it right. And, and John, John, John Patrickoff and Jonathan Soros are the two co-founders of Athletes Unlimited. And, I got to tell you, like through my conversations with them, I knew that there was the right way to go and they've been true to their word every step of the way. That so is awesome. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm proud to, I'm, I'm very happy that they saw a great product in the WPLL. That's got to be very gratifying to come in at one point and to be able to go, I feel like I'm moving this in the right direction. Because uh, in sports, you know, I, as a coach, for many years, you can do a lot of great work and it can be unraveled like that. And that is the worst feeling ever. And it's, uh, to me, it's really interesting and great to hear that you, you built something and you feel like it's moving forward. Yeah. Even when you're moving in a different direction, which is like the ultimate, you know what I'm saying? It's like a head coach handing off the team to somebody that continues to take them forward. And you're like, ah, yes. You know, like we put all this work in, it's getting better that's really heartwarming for me to hear that. So like you, you are like a, you are a high performer in a lot of different ways as a human being, as uh, you know, as a student athlete, as a professional athlete, as a public servant. I mean, really, I mean, you've been a high performer in a lot of areas. What does high performance mean to you though? I really think it's just optimizing my abilities to, to be the Mm. best, but I want it to be consistent and over a, you know, a long period of time, as long as I can. And on the field, you're, you're thinking, you know, at age 34, can I be what I need to be and what this team needs me to be, you know, at, at 24, when I'm running the streets of Baltimore, I'm full of energy and, you know, I know that I can do better and I'm, you know, I just think it's different in every scenario, but the one thing that's not changing is you optimizing your fullest potential. You will do Mm -hmm. that no matter what. I feel like if you can do that at any age, it's going to be different for different people. But that's for me is just, you know, optimizing my full potential and, and trying to maintain it. How do you take care of yourself right now? As a high performer, I mean, you're a high performing parent, you're high perform. Like, how do you, like, you put out a lot. How do you then take care of yourself so that you can keep doing that? I'm definitely into fitness. 
So I work out pretty much at least five days a week. And I, I'm now hooked on this orange theory thing. So I'm, I'm a little bit, I used to be into the CrossFit thing and now I'm in the orange theory and it's, it's great. It gives me, it, it puts it. The funny thing is, is that we've talked about like being the best at what you do and I'm 45. I'm going to be mm-hmm. 46 in like five months. And, um, I, <laughs> you're like, how do you know the day you're like, it's coming. <laughs> I, I know it's coming. And I, I laugh because, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with orange theory, but you wear like your yeah, heart man and you're out there and you see, like, I see what color my, how hard am I working? But mm-hmm. everybody else in that class can see it too. So I'm like, I'm going, you know, I'm, I am pushing and I feel like, you know, it's a great motivator for me. Like I like getting out there. I like the run. I like to, you know, row now. I didn't like it before, but I like it now and weights. Like it just makes me feel good at the end of each day Mm -hmm. that I've gotten in that workout. And quite honestly, I need to be in shape to keep up with my three kids and, uh, and my wife, they, they keep me, uh, super busy. And so that's the one thing I do. I try to eat well and I try to get out and do outdoor activities all the time. The kids, whether it's, you know, tennis or golf or soccer, you know, lacrosse, we're outside all the time. And so for me, it's, it's just kind of making sure that mentally I feel good that I'm physically fit. And then uh, I think the rest takes care of itself. Really, I like to read a little bit. I'd like to read more if I had more time, but you know, not as much as I'd like to get. Well, if you want some good book ideas, I can throw you some whenever you're ready. You just text me, and I'll I, I enjoy reading. Last question: What drives you? Gosh, God, I'm, I I have to say that it probably starts from when I was younger, and I can't. I come from a broken family. You know, my dad and mom divorced when I was nine and my mom is a recovering alcoholic or recovered alcoholic. So there have been a lot of challenges in, in my life. My dad has married three times and it's, it, there's a lot there, right? And I feel like I, I've gotten so much strength from those experiences. And um, I just want to I guess what drives me the most is that I always, I want to, I want to do right by people. I want to help people. And the fact that I can take everything that I've been through and be stronger and still continue to apply that every day to teach and to help others and provide opportunities for women to play lacrosse at the highest level to, you know, my, my little kids now and creating opportunities for them. I just, I want to help people. So that's kind of what drives me to kind of be creative and what can I do next? How can I help you be better? And in my childhood, just experiencing those things, like I had to grow up pretty fast and there, you know, things that I think for me, they were hard mentally to go through, but I felt like I gained so much strength. Like whether, you know, it's, I was like that, that I was the middle child. Right. So I just wanted to always please everybody and make sure that my dad was okay. Make sure that my mom was okay. Make sure that my sister and brother were okay. 
And, um, you know, I, I felt like I had to be the adult for my, you know, you know, for those preteen years and into my teen years, I, I, I had to be the adult and, and I felt like the way I got through a lot of that is one, I did have great support from friends and their families. And obviously, um, I think my dad is the fact that they weren't the right match for each other, which is fine. You know, now I'm older, I can look back on it and be like, Hey, it is what it is. It's really hard to see that as a child. Um, Mm -hmm. but my dad was like one of my biggest fans. He, he came to every athletic event I ever had and he always instilled, you know, hard work and loyalty and toughness and grittiness and do the best job you can, that you can. And whereas my mother, on the other hand, what, you know, she has a heart of gold. She wouldn't hurt a fly. You know, but she was just a little lost, I would say, for mm-hmm. for a while there. And, you know, as I've maintained those relationships and they're very different relationships, they're still really great relationships. And to this day, I mean, even my mom, my mom, we moved her down here. She lives with us in uh, mm-hmm. North Carolina. And honestly, like it can be challenging as, it, you know, anything can be with when it comes to parents. But she's needed me and I've needed her in a way. You know, mm-hmm. to, you know, what, and I think it's only, again, made me, made me stronger and, and has helped shape me. It's been an interesting road for sure, but one that I know now as I'm raising my own kids, you know, all the things that I really want them to take away from, from me as a parent and what I don't want to share with them and I don't want them to experience. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, life throws a lot of challenges to everybody and it's really how you handle it. And quite honestly, like I think we all can be grateful that we have the opportunity to live our life and we should live our best life and we should be the best version of ourselves every day because that's what makes the world tick. So Mm. I am just in awe of you to be quite honest. Like, (laughs) I, you know, I, this story, your story is pretty amazing. And you really do have a heart of gold. Like you really care about other people and you've done some amazing things, but it doesn't, it it sits on you well, if that makes any sense. You know, I'm just appreciative for you. And I, I the world needs more people like DJ. Oh. <laughs> so that's your nickname. Sorry, yeah. Michelle. But like, yeah. you know, I just, um, I'm appreciative of you and what you're doing and how your heart really revolves around other people. And to me, that that's high performance. You know I mean? Like that's what it's all about is like, if it's just about you at the end of the day, you know, we've both been athletes and coached in interesting situations. And one thing I never personally wanted was to die or be in my deathbed with a bunch of rings and trophies and not to have like my kids there that I've invested in and love them. And so uh, I can see the same thing in you is like, it's not just about you. It's about the impact that you're making on other people. And so I really yeah. appreciate that. And I appreciate you sharing some pretty difficult stories. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, Gosh. I mean, thank you for doing that. And so uh, thank you for coming on today. This is amazing. If people want to follow you, are you on social media or anything like that? How I do- am, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm not the best tweeter, but I, it's at Michelle DeJulius and Instagram is at M DeJulius. Okay. Yeah, I do my best. I, I, I pick and choose when I'm going to 
tweet. <laughs> I should yeah. do it every day, but you know, it's, uh, it's wise. It's, you know, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, but you know, Eric, I really appreciate you having me on here. It's, it's been mm-hmm. great to, to chat with you. And I think what you you're doing is awesome because I do think it really relates to so many people and it can be really impactful. So thank you for, for choosing me. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high-performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.